The first legal hanging in Lincoln County, New Mexico, saw the condemned man executed twice in the course of just a few short minutes. The accursed in question, guy with the unfortunate name of William Wilson, had recently gunned down local rancher Robert Casey over a mere $8 wage dispute. The two met on the streets of Lincoln in August of 1875, and Casey denied Owen Wilson a damn thing. Shortly thereafter, William retrieved his lever gun and put a round squarely in Casey's left ass cheek, sending the wounded man limping for cover. Wilson pursued his prey, this time getting up close and taking careful aim, and finishing what he started with a second bullet straight into Casey's face. Miraculously, Robert Casey would linger, albeit unconscious, for the next 30 hours before passing, leaving behind a wife and three children. William Wilson was promptly arrested, tried, found guilty, and sentenced to hang. The day of the execution, December 15, 1875, the citizens of Lincoln awoke to the sound of carpenters fast at work at the gallows as spectators began arriving from far and wide to witness the event. At exactly 11 a.m., Wilson was delivered to the scaffold where he shook hands with a few friends before stepping up and having the death warrant read, both in English and Spanish. This was followed by a prayer led by a local priest and, oddly enough, a very brief stay of execution. For some curious reason, the sheriff wanted to hold off, but the onlookers put up such a protest that after just a few minutes, the event unfolded as planned. Wilson's hands were tied behind him, a black sack placed over his head, and finally a noose was fixed around his neck. At the sheriff's command, the trapdoor fell and Mr. William Wilson went a-dangling. After nine and a half minutes, his body was cut down and placed in a casket where, surprise, surprise, he was discovered to still be alive. Once more, a noose was placed around William's neck as several citizens of Lincoln heaved and pulled and unceremoniously jerked the man out of his coffin and back up into the air. And this time they left him there hanging till he was dead, 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 which turned out to be about 20 minutes. While this story in and of itself is plenty interesting, it's indicative of the powder keg that was Lincoln County, New Mexico in the mid-1870s. Like I said, Robert Casey denied owing any amount of money to William Wilson. What's more, Casey was a good buddy of famed rancher John Chisholm, which, by default, made him an enemy of the prevailing Lincoln County merchants, Lawrence Murphy and his young apprentice, James J. Dolan. Matter of fact, Casey was in Lincoln on the day of his death, helping to organize a group of candidates that, if successful, would have possibly put an end to the Murphy-Dolan monopoly. According to author Maurice Fulton, in his book History of the Lincoln County War, Almost no one took seriously Wilson's claim that he killed Casey because the latter owed him 8 or $9 in wages. Casey had consistently opposed the Murphy machine, and Casey's friends imputed his killing to the antagonism he had aroused by his verbal attack on the Murphy organization at the convention earlier that day, end quote. And what's more, many think the initial hanging of Wilson was a ruse, that it was set up by the Murphy-Dolan faction with plans of faking the condemned man's death and sneaking him out of town in a casket. Just their way of saying thanks for a killing well done. And two years later, when Kid Antrim rode into Lincoln, things weren't much better. The teenager was rudderless and looking for any port in the storm. Little did he know how the tangled web of Lincoln County would shape his future and ultimately propel him to the status of a legend. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Yeah! Hey, real quick, this is part two in the series on Billy the Kid. 
Link to part one in the show notes and the entire series is available right now ad free on patreon.com forward slash wild west extra. Upon the kid's return to New Mexico, he stopped at the night ranch just outside of Silver City. This is one of the families that took both he and his brother Joseph in for a spell after Catherine's death. And it was in the night butcher shop where Henry worked for a short period before fleeing to Arizona. Antrim laid low at the night spread for a few weeks, securing some new duds and a fresh mount, and thus provision pressed on. Aimlessly, it would seem, but soon finding himself at a place called Apache Tejo, and thus into the welcoming arms of Jesse Evans and his gang, often referred to simply as the boys. More of an organized crime syndicate than a simple gang of bandits, the boys ran rampant over the Southwest, robbing and murdering and committing all manner of crimes, large and small. Mostly, though, they trafficked in stolen livestock. A lot of stolen livestock. We'll get to that soon enough. Uh, Just a quick word on the kid's recent choices. There was nobody chasing him from Arizona. As long as he stayed away, there was a very good chance he'd never face justice in the killing of Wendy Cahill. Same goes for Silver City. Sheriff Whitehill would never even hear about the Arizona shooting and would almost certainly have satisfied himself with giving Antrim a stern talking to for escaping jail back in September of 75. At just 16 or 17 years of age, the kid could have started again, but his past behind him and live a long, productive life. Probably, though, he figured he was now a branded man wherever he went and thus had no other choice but to fall in with a band of outlaws. Or maybe Henry truly loved the excitement of that life. I don't know. There was a mischief in young Antrim, though, and I'm not sure much of anything could have made him go straight. All right, enough about what I think, huh? Let's get back to the story, Josh. Now, Jesse Evans was about five or six years older than Henry and got his start cowboying for John Chisholm before falling in with former soldier and fellow banditti, John Kinney. Together, they would form a gang and take to Robin and Rustlin, using Kinney's ranch outside of Las Cruces as a headquarters. Both Kinney and Evans were killers. One drunken New Year's Eve found the pair, along with several of their outlaw buddies, brawling with some soldiers. Kenny got the worst of the fight, so he and the boys stood outside of the dance hall and unloaded their guns. Sort of an Old West version of a drive-by that resulted in the death of three and the wounding of two, one of whom was just an unlucky civilian standing at the wrong bar at the wrong time. A few days later, in Las Cruces, Jesse Evans would kill again, gunning down a man right there on Main Street in front of God and everybody. Now, by the time Henry Antrim fell in with this bunch sometime in late December of 1877, Jesse had branched off from Kenny and formed his own gang, although the two would still work together on occasion. And for what it's worth, the kid would only ride with Jesse Evans for a very short period of time. Henry was almost certainly with the gang on October 1st when they robbed three horses from a coal camp south of Silver City. They were encountered the following day by a civilian who claimed to have recognized the kid. It was even written up in the paper. Sometime on Tuesday, the party of thieves, among whom was Henry Antrim, were met in Cook's Canyon by Mr. Carpenter. From there, they headed east towards Mesilla, stealing horses as they went. Just outside of the old Fort Cummins, the boys held up a stagecoach. The driver assured the gang that he had no gold, so they let him beat, after forcing him to drink some of their whiskey. Upon sobering up, the driver would tell reporters that there were nine men in the gang, each armed with two revolvers and a rifle, and wearing a couple of cartridge belts apiece. Now that number nine would increase as they traveled. More of the boys showed up, most of them with stolen horses, and it weren't long before Evans' crew numbered over 26. More than enough to hold off the six-man posse that caught up with them. 
The outnumbered deputies didn't have anything but pistols, and I reckon they was all good men who loved their families because they soon forgot all about Evans and took refuge in a nearby canyon. By the way, back in Arizona, the kid had been occasionally going by his stepfather's name, William Antrim or Billy Antrim. But somewhere around the time he started riding with Evans is when he took to calling himself William H. Bonnie or Billy Bonnie for short. And of course, he still answered to the kid. Now that H in William H. Bonnie more than likely stood for Henry. And Bonnie, well, that's a riddle that has stumped researchers for going on 140 plus years now, with many suspecting that the kid's entire mysterious past could just be solved if we could only connect the dots to the Bonnie surname. There's a very strong case to be made that the kid's mother, Catherine, that her maiden name was Bonnie. Some even claim that the kid descends from Plymouth Pilgrim Thomas Bonnie or even the female pirate Anne Bonnie. Equally unproven yet worth mentioning is the theory of historian Herman Wisner, who asserted that Catherine was not born in Ireland, as most believe, but rather in Missouri. Her father, according to Wisner, was a James Bonnie who ran a freight business along the Santa Fe Trail. He abandoned his Missouri family and married him a senorita in New Mexico, whose father was a moral land-grant claimant. Now, this James Bonney was a real dude and very well documented. He opened up a trading post in northern New Mexico, had several children, and was doing well for himself. At least he was until 1846 when he went after some horse thieves and his corpse was discovered sometime later studded with arrows. The historian Wisner met with these New Mexico Bonnie descendants in the 1990s and believes he found a connection alluding to Catherine Antrim having a sister that lived in Lincoln County. And of course, here you have the kid in 1877 headed straight for Lincoln. Finally, in the 1880 census, the kid can be found listed as a resident of Fort Sumner, and it was recorded that he and his parents were from Missouri. Of course, that's the same census that shows Bonnie as being 25 years of age, and there's a very good chance that Billy didn't even give the information himself, or if he did, he had a big old grin on his face while doing so. This is all speculation. In my opinion, the simplest explanation is most often the correct one. For instance, if you'll recall in the previous episode, we discussed the kid's fondness for the written word, particularly dime novels. Well, there was a very popular dime novelist at the time named Edward Bonney. Very interesting guy in his own rights, uh, got arrested in the 1830s for being a counterfeiter. A little bit of foreshadowing for later on in this series. He escaped and he fled to the frontier, which back then was Illinois. Bonnie took to being a bounty hunter and gained a little notoriety for tracking down an assortment of thieves and killers. He then took his real-life adventures and used them as a basis for a series of dime novels. These books were widely circulated, even printed in papers across the country, and it is very possible that Henry Antrim, a.k.a. William H. Bonnie, got his hands on a few. So who knows, maybe Billy was a fan of this guy, maybe his mama's maiden name was Bonnie, or maybe he just liked the way that the name sounded. Now, Jesse Evans and the boys, possibly with Billy Bonney in attendance, continued their ride east toward Lincoln County, New Mexico. They shot up and terrorized the town of Tularosa on October 9th before setting up camp in Seven Rivers at the ranch of John Chisholm rival, Hugh Beckwith. Worth mentioning that present-day Lincoln County is not the same as it was in the 1870s. During Billy's life, the counties of Eddie, Chavez, and Otero did not exist. Instead, you had Lincoln County taking up almost the entirety of southeastern New Mexico. Hell, at one point in time, it was the largest county in the United States and over six times the size that it currently is. 
You have the county seat of Lincoln, with Fort Stanton just 10 miles to the west. And of course, the soldiers garrisoned at the fort were there to keep an eye on the Apache, living at the Mescalero Reservation to the southwest. If you were to keep traveling southwest, you'd hit Blazer's Mill, then Tularosa, and then finally, about 150 miles from Fort Stanton, the village of Mesilla. Some 50 or so miles east of Lincoln, you had the town of Roswell. Cue the aliens. Along with the cattle king of New Mexico himself, John Chisholm, and his bovine empire. Just a few months before, Billy started riding with Jesse Evans, Mr. Chisholm had been knee-deep in a little dust-up known as the Pecos War a precursor of sorts to the coming Lincoln County War. John's herds were being poached, so he claimed, by the Mescaleros to the east and a bunch of small-time outfits to the south who called themselves the Seven River Warriors. The range war ended in a stalemate, but in the upcoming hostilities, you had many of the same key players involved. Some 80 or so miles north of Roswell, you had Old Fort Sumner, on what was once the Navajo and Apache Reservation. If you listen to the series I did on Kit Carson, this was Bosque Redondo, where Carson led the Navajo on their forced long walk. More of an internment camp than a reservation, it was soon shut down as the Navajo, or at least those that survived, were allowed to return to their homeland. The abandoned fort then came into the possession of rancher and former fur trapper Lucian Maxwell. Maxwell would pass away there at Sumner in 1875, but by the time Kid Antrim arrived on the scene, his son Pete had the run of the place. And of course, further to the north, a little over 100 miles, you had Las Vegas, New Mexico, and the territorial capital of Santa Fe. This would be Henry Antrim's world basically for the rest of his life. These were his haunts, his AO, if you will. Aside from a couple of short trips into Texas, these locales would be where he plied his trade. Now, at some point in October of 1877, Billy parted ways to Jesse Evans, at least on a full-time basis. Per Mesilla Valley rancher Eugene Van Patten, the kid stopped at his spread that fall looking for work and then made his way to the ranch of High School Jones some 200 miles to the east over in Seven Rivers. Now, you may have heard the story of Billy having his horse stolen by the Apache and being forced to walk many a mile to the nearest vestige of civilization. Well, that vestige was the Jones Ranch. High school was away at the time, but his wife Barbara, known to all as Ma'am Jones, discovered Billy and nursed him back to health. Allegedly. Story goes that Billy and his buddy Tom O'Keefe had left Mesilla and headed east. They were advised to travel through the reservation, but they, quote, wanted to see the country, so they deviated to the south. And as luck would have it, somewhere around the Guadalupe Mountains, the Apache struck. Billy had left Tom with the horses as he went to fill up their canteens in a nearby watering hole when he noticed the warriors. Waving a warning to O'Keefe, Henry then ducked down to hide. Once the hostiles departed, he was forced to walk out on foot, alone, sleeping during the day and traveling at night. By the time the kid reached the Jones spread, he was about half-starved and his feet were a bloody mess. Did this really happen? Well... There are problems with the story for sure, some of which lie with the author Eve Ball, who documented these events. She clearly added in some romance and what some describe as contrived conversation. Furthermore, expert Robert Utley thinks the entire affair smacks of the sensational and points out there is no other historical record of this Tom O'Keefe even existing. The Apache story is likewise told in Pat Garrett's The Authentic Life of Billy the Kid, but with no mention of the Jones family which is interesting because the only part of this story that's not up for debate is that Billy certainly did spend time on the ranch of High School Jones. 
For whatever reason, he chose not to stay with Jesse Evans and their crew on the neighboring ranch of Hugh Beckwith. But as you'll soon hear, and as I alluded to earlier, the kid would still work with the boys on occasion. Bonnie was definitely at the Jones Ranch in mid-October when the widow Ellen Casey passed through, the wife of the late Robert Casey we mentioned at the beginning of this episode. According to Ellen's then 14-year-old daughter Lily, quote, the kid was active and graceful as a cat. At Seven Rivers, he practiced continually with pistol and rifle, riding at a run and dodging behind the side of his horse to fire, as the Apache did. He was very proud of his ability to pick up a handkerchief or any other object off the ground while riding at a run, end quote. Lily's older brother didn't remember Bonnie quite so fondly, however. Quote, he was nothing but a kid and a bum when I knowed him back then, end quote. Now, the widow Casey and her family were on their way to Texas, and Billy asked her more than once if he could join them, and each time she said no. It was also while staying at the Jones place that Billy had a little dust-up with Buck Morton, a foreman for what folks had taken to calling the Murphy Dolan faction. Apparently, young Billy had been hanging around one of Morton's cow camps and made the mistake of trying to cut in on Buck's girlfriend, a cute little thing everybody called the Belle of the Pecos Valley. Buck Morton didn't much appreciate this, so he put Bonnie out. What exactly was said, I don't know, but Billy would make comments about wanting to get even. And as it turns out, these weren't just idle threats. Now, I've already mentioned the Murphy-Dolan faction a couple of times, and we will dive into who this pair was in more detail in just a moment, but let me just go ahead and state that the coming troubles there in Lincoln County were complex, to say the least. You had many different groups and factions and shifting alliances. There's a lot of key players involved, the history has been heavily influenced by legend, and to be totally honest, it can be a little hard to keep track of everything. We are going to discuss the Lincoln County War in full, but the idea that it was just a simple cut-and-dry case of the corrupt bad guys versus the honest underdog is not exactly true. Okay, so let's take a look at Murphy first. The Irish-born Lawrence Gustav Murphy spent most of his adult life as a military man, enlisting with the U.S. Army straight off the boat in 1851 and serving pretty much continuously until the end of the Civil War. It appears Murphy saw action in the Seminole Wars down in Florida as well as the Utah Expedition before transferring to New Mexico where he served during the entirety of the war between the states. Murphy was a quartermaster and climbed rank quickly, according to one source, gaining the rank of Brevet Major and even serving as commander of Fort Stanton for a few months before finally mustering out for good in September of 1866. Lawrence would then join the Grand Army of the Republic sort of a fraternal organization of fellow Union veterans, and become heavily involved with the Republican Party as well as going into business with a fellow freshly mustered out officer, a German by the name of Emil Fritz. LG, as he was often called, and Fritz, then set about securing military contracts to supply beef and other foodstuffs to the nearby Apache Reservation, always a lucrative if not shady prospect, as well as speculating in and selling bogus land grants. They also provided cattle and goods to the soldiers of Fort Stanton along with payday loans and even became sort of unofficial advisors to the post officers. As time went on, Murphy was shown to be more and more corrupt. The cattle he was supplying to the army was often stolen by Jesse Evans and his gang, bought by Murphy at $5 a head, and then resold to the army for three times that amount. Enter in James Joseph Dolan. 17 years Murphy's junior, Dolan was likewise an Irish immigrant and former soldier who went to work for Murphy as a clerk shortly after being discharged. 
And apparently both Dolan and Murphy were cut from the same cloth, as far as business practices go. Dolan would rapidly work himself up in the organization, becoming a trusted protege and eventually partner in the whole damn enterprise. He was hot-headed, though. He and Murphy would be booted from doing business at Fort Stanton in 1873, partly for their shady business practices, but also due to J.J. Dolan taking a pot shot at an officer. Now, by this point, Dolan had made partner, replacing Emil Fritz. The German had fallen ill and traveled back home to Deutschland, where he passed from dropsy in the summer of 1874. And although Murphy and Dolan were ousted from the fort, they did still retain many of the government contracts and, what's more, they had a contingency plan. The two set up shop in the town of Lincoln and soon came to control nearly all of the business in the area. The house, as Murphy and company were referred to, operated a big two-story mercantile store there in Lincoln, as well as a brewery, boarding house, and saloon. And yeah, they were still dealing in stolen cattle. This is where Jesse Evans and the boys come into play. They were effectively on Murphy and Dolan's payroll. They'd rustle cattle from the other outfits like John Chisholm's, funnel them through Murphy's cow camps like the one run by Buck Morton, and sell them either to the Army or the reservation. Even the items they sold in their store in Lincoln, groceries and supplies and such, were marked up extremely high because they simply had no competition. The pair would claim that this was to counter the exorbitant price of shipping said goods all the way to Lincoln, but really, with the prices they were charging, a lot of folks considered it just flat-out highway robbery. Oh, and by the way, they also had the sheriff of Lincoln County, feller by the name of William Brady, in their pocket as well. Just like Murphy and Dolan, Brady was born in Ireland and a former soldier. Just a couple of years older than Murphy, Brady served from 1851 until his discharge in 1866 with the brevet rank of major. Best I can tell, these guys all served together. Murphy, Brady, Fritz. Brady was even the commander of Fort Stanton for a short period, just like Murphy. So it wasn't just a matter of, oh, here's this corrupt sheriff, let's pay him off and we can do what we want. Granted, Brady did owe Murphy quite a bit of money. But these men were brothers in arms, immigrants all of them, and they went back quite a long ways. And of course, I can't bring up the power dynamics of Lincoln County without mentioning the Santa Fe Ring, a group of influential New Mexico politicians, lawyers, and businessmen who were basically doing the same stuff as Murphy in the House, just on a statewide level. We say we want to be challenged, we say we want to hear all sides, but that's not how we act when we seek out podcasts. I'm Mike Pesca, host of The Gist, and I'm crazy enough to think that we are up to the challenge. I challenge myself, I challenge my guests, I invite you in. We'll talk about such issues as masks. I mean, I know they work, but on a population level, the evidence is less than clear. Mass shootings, horrible, but they account for less than 1% of all shootings. Do we do ourselves and our society a disservice when we focus on them? These questions and more explored and challenged every day on The Gist, wherever you get your podcasts. Think of the Murphy-Dolan faction as a crew. They're Joe Pesci in Casino, right? You ever see that movie? And the Santa Fe Ring, they're the bosses back home. You feel? Okay, maybe that's not the best analogy. Truth is, the Ring wasn't as organized as a lot of people seem to think, and its members were more motivated by their individual greed than the shadowy organization as a whole. Be that as it may, they controlled government contracts of the sort that Murphy had with the Army and a ton of land grants, along with various other business interests. Their unofficial official leader was a dude named Thomas Catron, 
a former Confederate and Republican, which was sort of a rarity back in those days. After the war, Catron studied law and then headed to New Mexico, where he worked his way up from district attorney to gain a presidential appointment as the U.S. attorney over the entire territory. Catron also became the single largest landowner in New Mexico, largely by taking advantage and manipulating old Spanish and Mexican land grants. The corruption of the Santa Fe ring was widespread, going as high as the territorial governor himself, Samuel Axtell. The ring had business interest in Lincoln County, and at least for a little while, Murphy and Dolan had Santa Fe's full backing. Now Murphy, being the damn Irishman he was, enjoyed his whiskey of an evening, a habit that was only exasperated once he was diagnosed with cancer of the bowels. Weren't long before LG began drinking just to keep the pain at bay. According to one Lincoln County resident, old man Murphy was dissipated and got so he couldn't do business, just drink whiskey. Yet another recalled that the former officer spent most of his time in an alcoholic stupor, and still another said that Murphy was so besotted with liquor that he was almost a negative quantity in the trouble, the trouble being the Lincoln County War, which we're about to get to, don't worry. By March of 1877, several months before the kid shot Wendy Cahill over in Arizona, Murphy officially retired from the house and relinquished control to Dolan, who at this point had a protege of his own by the name of John Henry Riley, another Irishman and former soldier. Imagine that. At some point, Murphy would leave Lincoln County entirely and head to a ranch in Santa Fe where he would die in October of 1878 at just 47 years of age. As such, Murphy was basically a non-factor in the Lincoln County War. How much involvement he had, what he knew, and what he ordered, I'm not sure. I was unable to determine when he left Lincoln and, although he would still be alive once the war was officially over, I'm not sure how aware he was of the stuff going on 200 miles to the south as he lay dying in Santa Fe. So what L.G. Murphy and old Emil Fritz built, Dolan and Riley had the run of by the fall of 1877 when Billy Bonney came trotting on in. And the kid weren't the only newcomer. In 1875, a Canadian-born lawyer by the name of Alexander McSween arrived and had the distinction of being the very first attorney to open up shop in Lincoln. And you better believe he promptly went to work for L.G. Murphy in the house. Matter of fact, when Emil Fritz passed away, it would be Alex McSween who was tasked with handling his estate, including a $10,000 life insurance policy or a quarter of a million in today's money. Now, this is where things get murky again. Oh, boy, do they. Fritz did not have a wife or kids, but he did have brothers and sisters. McSween was supposed to travel to New York and work out all the details. I'm not sure if he did or not, but the entire ordeal was one big, long, drawn-out mess. Months and months passed, and finally, Alexander McSween, for some reason, received the proceeds of the policy instead of Fritz's siblings. There are some that say McSween was dragging his feet using shyster lawyer tactics in order to keep the money for himself. Others believe the attorney was protecting it for Fritz's heirs and making sure Murphy and Dolan weren't screwing anybody over. McSween even refused to release the money until he was allowed to examine Murphy and Dolan's books, at which point they had enough and told him to kick rocks nerd. Of course, by this time, Murphy was sick and not really involved so much as J.J. Dolan. In December of 1877, the House brought embezzlement charges against Alexander McSween, and both he and rancher John Chisholm were tossed in jail. Why Chisholm? Well, he was one of the few prominent men in New Mexico not aligned with the Santa Fe ring. 
and seeing as how far too many of his beeves turned up in Dolan cow camps and got sold to Fort Stanton, with the money ending up in Dolan's pockets, Chisholm wasn't exactly a fan of the house either. For what it's worth, John Chisholm was quickly released from jail as there was no evidence he was involved in the embezzlement. And once McSween got bailed out, he started getting real vocal about Dolan in the house. Oh, and by the way, as far as I know, nobody has any idea what happened to that $10,000. And to further confuse matters, just to show that this is way more complicated than usually presented, Dolan and the house were on the verge of bankruptcy. Yeah, I know. They were such a big, bad monopoly, and if they controlled all the business in Lincoln, then how the hell were they going broke? Like I said, this entire issue is not the cut-and-dry, good-versus-bad scenario it's often made out to be. It's very complicated, there's a lot of players involved, and I think the reality of the situation in Lincoln County in the mid and late 1870s is a lot different than we often like to think. Which brings us to a guy named John Tunstall. Born in England in 1853, Tunstall moved to Canada at the age of 19 to work in his father's store, but the young man's ambitions were more than a mere clerk's job could provide for. In early 1876, John traveled to California with the thoughts of starting a sheep ranch, but somehow found himself in Santa Fe, New Mexico instead, where the aforementioned Alexander McSween befriended the young Englishman and began extolling the virtues of Lincoln County. Tunstall and McSween soon became partners, and with McSween's help, Tunstall purchased a ranch about 30 or so miles south of Lincoln. Okay, fine. But like I said, John Tunstall was ambitious. He, and probably McSween, let's be honest, saw an opportunity to compete with the monopoly that was James Dolan. And as such, Tunstall opened up a mercantile store of his own, right there in Lincoln. He even started up a bank to compete with Dolan's bank. And lest you think John Tunstall was merely offering up options to the beleaguered citizens of Lincoln, the young Englishman did boast in letters back home that he'd soon put Dolan out of business and ensure that half of every dollar made in Lincoln County would end up in his pockets. And that's a direct quote. So all of this was bubbling up when Billy Bonnie arrived. You had Murphy and the Dolan faction on one side, backed by the powerful Santa Fe ring. And on the other side, you've got Alexander McSween, possibly an embezzler, his new friend John Tunstall making no bones about trying to put the house out of business, and John Chisholm. Although Chisholm would sit the upcoming conflict out, he was certainly an ally of McSween and Tunstall, if for no other reason than that they too defied the great Santa Fe ring. Keep in mind that Dolan had quite a few bruisers at his disposal ready to do his bidding. Sheriff Brady and his deputies, Jesse Evans and John Kinney and their prospective gangs, as well as them Seven Rivers boys. As such, Tunstall found himself hiring a few heavy hitters of his own just in case shit got real. Which, of course, brings us back to our friend Kid Antrim. Remember, by October of 1877, Billy is spending a lot of time on the high school Jones Ranch down Seven Rivers Way, while Evans and his bunch are at the neighboring Hugh Beckwith spread. And it was there on October 17th that a posse led by the young yet capable Dick Brewer arrested Jesse Evans and a few of his men. Now, Dick arrived in Lincoln County by way of Vermont, Wisconsin, and Missouri sometime in either late 1870 or early 1871. He bought a little plot of land for a farm, and like so many others in the area, he went to work for Lawrence G. Murphy, at least for a short period of time. Uh, I'm not sure in what capacity, but I'm certain it had something to do with watching cows shit. By 1876, a then 26-year-old brewer finds employment at John Tunstall's ranch as a foreman. 
And by October of 77, when Dick raided the Beckwith Ranch, he did so while wearing a deputy's badge. So not only was it all above the line and legal, but Evans and his men ended up in jail in Lincoln County, much to the chagrin of Dolan and Sheriff Brady. Needless to say, Jesse Evans wouldn't be behind bars for long. A month after the arrest, on the evening of November 17, 1877, about 30 members of Evans' gang, Billy Bonney included, paid a visit to Lincoln and busted him out. Sheriff Brady had only left one guard, and I reckon he felt like he weren't paid enough to go up against 30 determined banditti. And let me just say real quick, um, as with any topic I cover on this podcast, it's very hard to ascertain where the truth lies. With Billy the Kid, there's no difference. If anything, the myth and legend built up around him over the years has just made it that much more difficult. Throughout this series, there are going to be certain incidents that I describe that, to be perfectly honest, are unprovable. Many of them hinge on just the words of one or two people 40 or 50 years after the fact. Keep in mind that the human memory is not as good as we like to think, and also keep in mind that once Billy the Kid became a household name, everybody was looking for a connection. Lies were told and passed down through the generations. Stories were blown out of proportion. You get the picture. This is just something that has to be endured when looking at history. As for Billy's involvement busting Evans out of jail, we have the word of Francisco Trujillo. When interviewed in the late 1930s, Francisco claimed that he and his brother Juan were out hunting when they encountered the triumphant bandits, with Bonnie most definitely among them. According to Billy the Kid expert Robert Utley, while Trujillo's words appear to at first be the incoherent ramblings of a senile old man, once everything is put together in the proper context, they do hold quite a bit of water. But here's the crazy part. Once the outlaws freed Evans, they all headed straight for the ranch of Dick Brewer, the same old boy that arrested him. They had breakfast there, Brewer was not present, and then they took eight of John Tunstall's horses out of Dick's corral, leaving notes of apology and a promise to never steal from either one of them again. What's more, all of the horses except for one were soon returned to the rightful owners. Ah, but the plot thickens further. Remember, Evans got locked up for stealing Tunstall livestock. Well, as it turns out, John Tunstall himself visited Evans and his buddies in jail, brought them whiskey, joked with them, even bought them brand new suits. This being the case, many believe that it was Tunstall who arranged it so that Evans and his crew could get fresh mounts at Dick Brewer's small ranch following the escape. But why? Why have your foreman pursue and arrest the outlaws just to help them escape later on? Assuming any of this is true, of course. A lot of folks think this was due to the English rancher knowing the trouble that was brewing and thinking maybe he could coerce Jesse Evans to fight on his behalf. As it were, Tunstall would begin hiring hands based more on their prowess with a firearm than their talent with a lasso. And who better to hire than a shifty, well-heeled young man like Kid Andrum, a.k.a. Billy Bonney? By the way, Billy may have showed up on Tunstall's radar after he stole one of the man's buggies, or should I say borrowed, and got himself locked up in Lincoln. Lots of maybes when it comes to Billy the Kid. FYI, that jail in Lincoln in 1877 was literally just two large pits dug into the ground surrounded by adobe. Now, if the story about Billy still in the buggy is true, his incarceration was short-lived, and he soon showed up at the farm of Charlie Bowdry looking for work. Charlie, initially trying to get shut of the youngster, brought Bonnie over to the ranch of cousins Frank and George Coe and their brother-in-law James Ab Saunders. The co-spread was on the upper Rio Dosa River, kind of near where the small town of Hondo, New Mexico, now stands. 
And as the kid began hanging around the Rio Doso Valley, he became acquainted with a new social class, one much more fitting than the rank sword he'd been associating with while riding for Evans. In addition to the co-cousins, Ab Saunders and Charlie Bowdry, you also had Charlie's farming partner, Josiah Doc Skurlock. For the most part, these old boys were honest men. They were tough, Doc especially, and okay, maybe on occasion they trafficked in stolen or air quote stray cattle, but they weren't just constantly dodging the law. And they also knew how to have a good time. It was with these new friends that the kid began attending dances, especially in nearby San Patricio, which would become one of his favorite hangout spots. Billy also became quite the hunter around this period, taking down deer, turkey, and even bear and selling the meat at Fort Stanton. According to Frank Coe, years later, he and the kid became staunch friends. I never enjoyed better company, said Coe, speaking about Bonnie. He was humorous and told me many amusing stories. He always found a touch of humor in everything, being naturally full of fun. Though he was serious in emergencies, his humor was often apparent even in such situations. Coe also maintained that he found Billy different than most boys his age. And on account of being orphaned, the kid had grown accustomed to associating with men several years his senior, and it showed. What's more, Billy knew that his young age and smaller, frail physique, as Co put it, left him at a disadvantage, so he sought to become as proficient with firearms as possible. As far as the socializing was concerned, Co would state that Billy, quote, lost no time getting to know the other people in the valley. He was the center of attention everywhere he went, and though heavily armed, he seemed as gentlemanly as a college-bred youth. He quickly became acquainted with everybody, and because of his humorous and pleasing personality, grew to be a community favorite. In fact, Billy was so popular, there wasn't enough of him to go around. He had a beautiful voice and sang like a bird. One of our special amusements was to get together every few nights and have a singing. The thrill of those happy nights still lingers. Pleasant memory. And tonight, I would give a lot to live through one again. Frank Coe and I played fiddles, and all of us danced. And here, too, Billy was in demand. He was a mighty nice dancer and what you'd call a ladies' man. He talked the Mexican language and was also liked by the women. End of quote. So there you have it, fellas. A little bit of personality goes a long way. Because let's face it, the Billy the Kid we all know and love was uglier than a monkey's armpit. Or at least that's how he appears in that famous one and only photo. You know what? Let's go ahead and address the kid's physical appearance real quick. I think we've got a good idea of his personality, right? He had a great sense of humor. He liked to dance and sing. He loved music. He could be quiet at times, and he enjoyed to read. Most of all, he liked the senioritas, and they liked him. So he couldn't have been all that damn ugly, right? Like I said, we only have that one picture to go on. The famous tin type that portrays the kid in the dark hat, revolver strapped around his waist, and Winchester rifle in hand. And it's just not the most flattering photo in the world, to say the least. Not only does Billy look extremely unimpressive, but I'm saying this the nicest way possible. Uh, he kind of looks like the dude from the Goonies. Hey, you guys. Not exactly lining up with all these claims of him being a ladies' man. It's obviously a bad picture, right? We've all taken them. Imagine one of your worst selfies you accidentally take when you're unlocking your phone or... Some horrible picture someone snapped of you at a party ends up being the only likeness of you left after you're gone. OMG, how embarrassing. Billy's future gal pal, Paulita Maxwell, even claimed that the picture did not do Bonnie justice and that she never liked it. 
Now, the photo in question was taken at Fort Sumner in either late 1879 or very early 1880. There's a really great article in True West Magazine from 2007 where Robert McCuban goes into all the details in the photo's many translations over the years. Link in the show notes. It's absolutely worth the read. Uh, also, my buddy David Lambert has written a bit on this topic as well, also in the show notes. Credit to both of these guys for the extra insight. So the tintype of Billy was actually four separate yet identical images. I don't know the technical jargon, but they were printed on a metal plate. The plate could be then cut into the four copies, and it was. Matter of fact, we know that the kid gave one of the copies to his good buddies Dan and Sam Diedrich, another to Delvina Maxwell, and we're not sure about the other two. Only one survives to this day, and it's tiny, about the size of a credit card. And because it's a tintype, it's a mirror image. This is why for years people thought that the kid was left-handed. It wasn't until somebody noticed in the dang 1950s that the loading gate on Billy's Winchester was on the wrong side. Upon further inspection, even the buttons on his vest and his belt buckle seemed to be backwards. If you reverse the photo, it's all good, with the kid's pistol on his right hip. That pistol, by the way, was possibly a Colt Thunderer. It's hard to make out in the picture, at least to me, but the kid was said to have favored a double-action Colt Thunderer, chambered in 41 Long Colt. If you're not familiar, in total layman's terms, double-action means that you did not have to manually cock back the hammer between every shot, thus allowing you to somewhat rapid-fire your revolver. The Colt Thunderer had a distinctive bird's head grip, sort of like the gun that Doc Holliday lays on the table in Tombstone when he tells Ed Bailey they can be friends. Now, technically, that's a Colt Lightning, but the grip would have been the same. I believe Emilio Estevez also uses one in Young Guns, too. The real-life Doc Holliday was said to have been a fan of the Thunderer, as was John Wesley Harden, so there you go. All right, so let's address what Bonnie is wearing in the famous photo. That's not a top hat on his head. I'm not sure what it's called, but it does appear to just be a narrow-brim cowboy hat with the top sort of punched in. Once again, I will refer you to the great David Lambert, who theorizes that this was just a trend in the area, as you can find similar photos of Bob Ollinger and Jimmy Dolan wearing hats in the same style. There's a picture of Ollinger and Dolan together, and Dolan's hat looks almost identical to the kids, just at a better angle. Billy has a bandana or scarf around his neck, is wearing an unbuttoned vest, and the shirt underneath is what's called a bib shirt, also known as a fireman's shirt. Here's a little fun fact for you that will annoy you to no end from now on every time you watch a Western. Nobody had shirts that were fully buttoned up back in the 1870s or even the 1880s for that matter. Fully buttoned up shirts like we wear now did not come into play until the 1890s. Most men would have worn pullover shirts that either had three to five buttons up top or they had bib shirts like the kid is wearing in that tintype. And these bib shirts literally had what looked to be large bibs over the chest area. You can see John Wayne wearing them in the searchers or better yet, look up the bloodstained photo of Billy's good friend, Charlie Bowdry, the one with him sitting down, rifle across his lap as his bride stands to his left. He's got a big old bib shirt on. Oftentimes, they had fancy designs on them, and it's very hard to make out, but the kid's shirt has a large anchor on it. Once again, David Lambert found some very similar bib shirts, a couple of which looked to have the same exact anchor design as what Billy was wearing. The kid's also got a pinky ring on the hand holding the rifle. I've heard of this referred to as a gambler's ring, but hey, 
Gangsters of all types to this day still wear pinky rings. And what was Billy the Kid if not a motherfucking G? And yeah, he is wearing a cardigan. Okay? You got a problem with that? You think gangsters don't wear cardigans? No, uh, despite what you may see on a certain Nat Geo documentary, there are a lot of photos of other Old West figures wearing similar cardigans, even working cowboys. Now, everything about this photo, barring the pinky ring, is in direct contradiction to how the kid was remembered as dressing by multiple credible sources. He was very finicky about what he wore, especially when in town with the ladies which lends credence to the theory that the kid had just been riding the range shortly before the photo was taken. Maybe he had just delivered a herd of stolen horses and was tired as hell. I don't know. Others speculate that the hat the kid's wearing was a prop that the photographer provided, due to Billy being well-known as favoring a very wide sugarloaf sombrero. As for his undeniably goofy look, well, it kind of depends on which version of the tin type you're gazing at. First of all, there was a reflector screen to the kid's right, and the glare from that makes it appear as if he has no jawline. The surviving tintype has been badly damaged with a ton of scratches and streaks. All of these blemishes just add to that weird, misshapen face look. In attempts to better define the kid's invisible jawline, many of the copies have been retouched by adding a random jawline that only serves to make the kid appear almost ghoulish and the many artist renderings that followed just went ahead with that same made-up, weird-looking jaw. As to whether or not he was truly as butt-ugly in the face as he appears, let's look at the various descriptions. A reporter from the Las Vegas Gazette who interviewed the kid while he was in jail described him as follows. He looked and acted like a mere boy. He is about 5 feet 8 or 9 inches tall, slightly built and lithe, weighing about 140. A frank open countenance, looking like a schoolboy with a traditional silky fuzz on his upper lip, clear blue eyes with a roguish snap about him, light hair and complexion. He is, in all, quite a handsome-looking fellow, the only imperfection being two prominent front teeth slightly protruding like squirrel's teeth, and he has agreeable and winning ways. Another description comes from a Dr. Henry Hoyt, who described Billy as 18 years old, a handsome youth with a smooth face, wavy brown hair, an athletic and symmetrical figure, and clear blue eyes that could look one through and through. Unless angry, he always seemed to have a pleasant expression with a ready smile. His head was well-shaped, his features regular, his nose aquiline, his most noticeable characteristic a slight protrusion of his upper two teeth. And then, of course, you've got Polita Maxwell. I never liked the picture. I don't think it does Billy justice. It makes him look rough and uncouth. The expression of his face was really boyish and very pleasant. He may have worn such clothes as appear in the picture on the range, but in Fort Sumner, he was careful of his personal appearance and dressed neatly and in good taste. It seems to me that the first-hand accounts are clear. The kid was obviously good-looking, or at least he was average enough that his personality pushed him over the edge. That flash from the reflector screen coupled with the many retouches that were attempted on the photo throughout the years in addition to just being a bad picture, all make it appear as if Bonnie was about half goofy. Truth is, he was just a normal-looking dude, a little on the girlish side, youthful appearing, and slightly buck-toothed. And he had blue eyes. Can't forget that secret little weapon. Them blue eyes, boy. Look, you got you some blue eyes and you don't live somewhere with a strong population of Latinas? Well, all I can say is you're missing out. All right, enough about all that. By Thanksgiving of 1877, 
A now 17-year-old Billy had found steady work on John Tunstall's ranch. According to author Michael Wallace, quote, the kid, at least briefly, was at ease. For the first time in a long time, he had three square meals each day, a job of sorts, a warm bunk inside a crowded but cozy adobe, and a decent horse to ride. The wages he drew allowed him to procure a dime novel or two, a tin of pomade for slicking back his hair before a dance, and maybe even a slim grub steak for a game of three-card money, end quote. Now, this job saw Bonnie befriending other Tunstall employees like Fred Waite, Henry Newton Brown, John Middleton, Robert Wideman, and, of course, the foreman Dick Brewer, some of whom were hired for the same reason Billy was, their willingness to resort to violence if need be. Tunstall, unsuccessful in swaying Jesse Evans away from the Dolan camp, was still making moves of his own, securing some heavy hitters in case things got crazy. And believe me when I say things were about to get real crazy. With Tunstall partnered with Alexander McSween, he was now inheriting some of the lawyer's problems, namely that embezzlement charge. A Judge Bristle even issued a writ of attachment for McSween's property to cover the missing 10000 As such, Sheriff Brady raided McSween's office and started confiscating property. Only thing is, he didn't stop there. Due to Tunstall's relationship with the lawyer, the sheriff hit the Englishman's store as well, seizing it in its entirety and posting deputies there day and night. Tunstall was pissed. There was a tense moment in town as he and his men, Billy Bonney included, confronted the sheriff. Luckily, no blood was spilt on that day, but oh, the violence was a coming. And once again, Billy would be given a choice. And that's about all we've got on this second installment. Now, I just mentioned a guy named Fred Waite, full name Frederick Tecumseh Waite. He was half Chickasaw, highly educated, and, well, if you'd like to learn more, you'll just have to subscribe to my 100% free newsletter. Seriously, man, if you have not already signed up for the newsletter, I'm going to need a good reason why. Do it. Do it now. Wildwestjosh.substack.com Or just go on over to my website, wildwestextra.com, and click that tab that says newsletter. It really is free. There's no catch here. Look, what I'm really trying to say is if you don't sign up for my newsletter, there's a very good chance I'll develop a stutter. And do you really want me on here stuttering? I can barely talk as it is. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, we will be back next week with episode three. Shout out to everybody on Patreon and everyone supporting the Wild West extravaganza via Buy Me a Coffee. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Till next time, try not to embezzle $10,000 from a dead German. Okay. Even if you get away with it, there's a good chance some dummy like me will be making fun of you 150 years from now on whatever the post-apocalyptic version of a podcast is. Bye-bye. than a monkey's armpit.